This afternoon we open God's Word in the Old Testament, the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Taliam, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people of Israel spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned on and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, 
the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after, after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This afternoon I proclaim God's word to you as the church confesses it in Lord's Day 35 of the Heidelberg Catechism. That's a summary of the teaching of God's word on the second commandment. Lord's Day 35. What does God require in the second commandment? That commandment reads as follows. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. May we then not make any image at all. God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them 
in order to worship God or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity. No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. So far, our confession. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are quite familiar, I dare say, with the Ten Commandments. We hear them every Sunday morning. This afternoon, we're dealing with the Second Commandment. And obviously, that follows the First Commandment. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. That's about who we are to serve. The second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. That's about how we are to serve God. And those two are very important. Obviously, it's very important whom we serve. But God tells us it's also very important how we serve him. And so he has given us this second commandment. It's not only important that we serve God, but it's also important how we serve God. And if there's a passage in the Old Testament, a story that even the children here this afternoon are probably familiar with, it's this story of Samuel and Saul. The message that the prophet Samuel gave to Saul, king of Israel, was to obey is better than sacrifice. And that's really the point of the second commandment. To obey is better than sacrifice. You can say that you're serving God, but if you're not serving him in accordance with his word, God isn't pleased. In fact, your worship of him is not acceptable to him. To obey is better than sacrifice. Now, in the Old Testament times, Israel was surrounded by nations who worshipped their gods by means of various images. And that's evident from the second commandment itself because, as we heard a moment ago, the Lord says, you are not to make any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. There are three categories there that we're very familiar with. Images of things in heaven above refers to birds. Images of things in the earth beneath refers to cattle. And images of things in the water under the earth refers to fish. Birds, cattle, and fish. Those are the three kinds of things that the pagans surrounding Israel would use to make images of their gods. Not that they necessarily thought that their gods looked like those things, but in some cases they thought that their gods shared certain qualities with those things. Perhaps they wanted to emphasize the strength of their god. So they chose an ox to depict their God. Somehow these images reflected something about their gods that they wanted to convey. 
Now, I don't think any of us here this afternoon is even tempted to make an image of God, an image of wood or stone. We know that very well. We don't worship God like that. But what about other things? And by the way, why was it that God did not want Israel to make images of him? It was because they had not seen God. That's what you can learn from Deuteronomy chapter 4. When God appeared to Israel at Mount Sinai, he did not show himself to Israel. He was there in, in cloud and fire and smoke. It all represented his holiness, but he was shrouded from their presence by way of those things. But he was there because they felt his presence. The earth shook and there was fire and smoke and cloud. He was there and it represented his majesty. God is too majestic to be captured in an image. I think we understand that. The Bible teaches that clearly. But what about other images? What about other ways of contravening this commandment? And then I think of this story from 1 Samuel 15. That's where the rubber hits the road for us today. Even the kids here know the story. The God of Israel had told Saul, king of Israel, to destroy the Amalekites. The Amalekites had made life miserable for Israel, and God was going to punish them. He told Saul to gather men to destroy the Amalekites. Israel was to destroy every person and everything that they had. It was all supposed to be destroyed. That was representative of God's anger against sin. And so Saul went out, he mustered the people, he fought the Amalekites, but he did it his own way. They spared Agag, king of the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle and the lambs. They killed what was worthless and full of defect. And then Samuel went to Saul and asked him, What have you done? Did the Lord not command you to destroy everything? And Saul said, Well, look at what I've done. I went out. I went on the mission. I killed so many Amalekites. We destroyed so many things. But we saved the best to sacrifice to the Lord. Now you can believe that if you want, but I tend to be a bit of a skeptic. It sounded so good. And Saul passed it off as wanting to sacrifice the good things for the Lord. But it wasn't what God had said. And Samuel said, stop, I've heard enough. Why did you not listen to the voice of the Lord? 
And like I said, Saul said, but I went out and I killed so many. As if partial obedience makes up for partial disobedience. As if doing what God wants in one aspect of our lives and doing it well compensates for not doing what God wants in other aspects of our lives. And I want you to notice this afternoon that when King Saul responded to the words of Samuel, he said, I went out and did what the Lord your God said for me to do. Notice the distance that Saul placed between himself and God. He said, the Lord your God. He didn't speak in terms of the Lord my God. It showed a distance between himself and God. There was this alienation. Saul was not walking with God, and yet he was called to do the will of God, to live in accordance with his word. It was a totally different attitude than the attitude that the prophet Samuel had displayed when the Lord had called him. Do you remember that? Maybe you children know that story too. In the night, Samuel, when he was still young, at the beginning of his prophetic task, heard his name, Samuel. Samuel. And he went to the prophet Eli. And Eli said at long last, next time you hear that voice say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And when Samuel heard his name again, he said, Speak, your servant hears. That's the right attitude. That's the attitude that Saul should have had. Speak, Lord, your servant hears. There's a beautiful hymn about that. When we sang songs in the liturgy last week at Rehoboth, I assigned that beautiful provisional hymn, Speak, O Lord. I wish I could assign it here this afternoon, but I can't. Speak, O Lord. That's the attitude we should have. But Saul did not listen. He did his own thing. And then if you reflect on Saul's life, you see a disconnect. You see a disconnect between him and the Lord. The Lord, your God. Not my God. Your God. But you also see a connection. You see the connection between the first commandment and the second commandment. In the first commandment, the Lord says, serve me. But what did Saul do after he had defeated the Amalekites? We read it. He went out and erected a monument to himself. Something to immortalize himself so that he would be remembered in future generations. For Saul, it was all about himself. It was about his ego, and you know what that word means, right? In Greek, the word ego means I. I, myself, and me. That's what it was all about for Saul. He lived for himself, he served himself, and that's why he also said, the Lord your God, not my God. And that manifested himself in how he lived before the Lord, in his relationship with the second commandment. 
If we live for ourselves, congregation, we are also going to serve God on our own terms. Saul was willing to serve God, but he was willing to do it only on his own terms. And there you see the connection. If the first commandment is not in place in our lives, the second commandment is not going to work out very well either. Then we are going to serve God on our own terms. And that's what's at stake here for us this afternoon. My question to each one of you this afternoon is, are you serving God on your own terms? It's easy for us if we get lost in the matter of images and all of that sort of stuff. But it comes very close to home if we confront ourselves with that question. Are we serving God on our own terms? And that's very easy for us to do. It's very easy for us to engage in self-willed worship, that we do it according to our own will, according to our own standards. We want to live life in a certain way, so then we start to interpret the Bible according to our standards. We don't like certain prescriptions in the Bible. Let's say something that might impact our lifestyle, and we explain it away. We say, well, that's not relevant for us today. That was then. That was the culture of that world. But times have changed, and it's no longer relevant today. You see, then we serve God on our own terms. And once you're on that road, you can start pulling pages out of the Bible as much as you want, as it suits you. And then we justify it by having a particular mental image of God. We're not in danger of making an image of wood or stone, but we are very much in danger of making a mental image of God. What's your conception of God? Sometimes people say, God is love. God is love. Just read 1 John. It's a beautiful book of the Bible, a beautiful letter. And there's that text, God is love. That's true, but that's not the only thing the Bible says. And sometimes we try to justify our particular way of serving God with a reference to that text. So we live life on our own terms. But we say, God wants me to be happy. God doesn't want me to carry this weight through life. God wants me to live a fulfilled life. And God is love. He will understand. I have to do this for myself. For me to be me. But the Bible doesn't only say God is love. And the Bible doesn't only say he forgives our sins. The Bible also says God is a God who wants to be served according to his own will. The Bible also says God is a God who is angry because of sin. And there's forgiveness for sin, but only if we repent from sin. Only if we try in the power of the Holy Spirit to fight sin. 
It's one thing to run up against sin day after day, but then to fight it and to try to do better the next day, that's one thing. But it's another thing to just feed that pet sin, to let it live in our lives, to let it grow. That's different. And then you cannot say, God is love, God forgives. That's very sad, but sometimes I get the impression when I talk to certain people that their attitude is, oh, well, you know, it's the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. Isn't that what we Reformed churches preach? We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. And if we believe, then all our sins are forgiven. And you know they're not living according to God's word. But they say, I pray for forgiveness at the end of the day. That's not what the Bible says. It's not that God will forgive us no matter what. It's that God will forgive us when we walk humbly with him in faith. So sometimes we have a wrong mental image of God. We think of him as someone who hands out forgiveness freely, as if grace is cheap. But the Bible says it costs God his own son. It's with his own precious blood that Jesus Christ paid for our sins. His precious blood. Not with silver or gold, says 1 Peter chapter 1, but with the precious blood of God's own son. And we cannot take that as cheap grace. So there's one example of a mental image of God, a distorted picture of God. Then we're serving an image of God that we have created in our own minds. Then we have cast God in a certain mold of our own making. There's also another example that I could give you. Sometimes we're inclined to think that all is well because we're in a faithful church. We think all is well because we be born into the covenant. And we'll be saved. There's the promise of the covenant, isn't there? Yes, there is the promise of the covenant. But the form for baptism makes very clear that baptism calls and obliges us to a new obedience. We are to cleave to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to love Him, to serve Him with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and with all our strength. That's what we confess about baptism in the covenant. Not that you are saved no matter what, just because you have been baptized. We have a responsibility to embrace those promises of faith, to live out of them, to acknowledge God as the God of our lives. And we have that wonderful preface of the law. Did you ever think about the fact that the Ten Commandments do not just come to us as a list of Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments have an introduction, a preface, we call it. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That means out of the house of slavery to sin. We have been redeemed. But then God gives us ten commandments to tell us now live like this in the freedom that I have obtained for you. 
I have set you free from the slavery to sin. I have set you free from the slavery to self. Because that was your problem. That's why things became derailed. Because you fell in the beginning and wanted to live for yourself. You wanted to serve yourself. It was all about your ego. It was all about setting up a monument to yourself in life. Building your own little kingdom. But the gospel is about the kingdom of God and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we heard this morning. And God says, I set you free from that thinking. Now walk in freedom before me. Sometimes we think of these Ten Commandments as ten upraised fingers. Or sometimes we think of these Ten Commandments as two hands that are ready to slap us down. Now there is something to that. God warns us in the law. But really when it comes down to it, and when you think about the preface of the law, and the fact that the Ten Commandments flow from that, you do well to think of the Ten Commandments as the ten fingers of God's hands. These ten fingers of God's hands are the hands that want to hold you up and carry you through life. God puts his hands under your lives and says, now walk like this and I'll walk with you. We sang of it this morning in Psalm 25. The Lord is faithful to his covenant to those who walk with him. That's how we should think of it. And we cannot just say, well, I've been born into the covenant and now I can live as I please. God says, I have included you in the covenant of grace, but I have done that and given you the responsibility to walk with me in humble faith and obedience. So we can create wrong mental images of God. We're in danger of that. And that's where this second commandment hits the road in our lives. What did the Lord Jesus say in his ministry? Because Jesus Christ is the one who came into the world to set us free from the house of slavery to sin. What did Jesus Christ say? In the Gospels, we hear Jesus Christ saying to God's own people of his day, Israel, you have forsaken my commandments for the sake of your traditions. Matthew 15. They had all kinds of little rules, and the Jews of Christ's day had to jump through all kinds of hoops, laid down by the leaders of the people, the Pharisees, but the Pharisees were neglecting the greater things of the law, like the prophet Micah said. Things like compassion, mercy, justice, righteousness. The people of Christ's own day, the covenant people of his day, were willing to swallow a camel and sift out a gnat. They were so focused on certain little things at the expense of the things of God's law. Sometimes we're in danger of doing that too. 
Sadly, you sometimes meet people in our churches who, who would expect you to jump through all kinds of hoops in order to be considered a good Christian. They say, if you don't do those things, you're not quite up to snuff as a Canadian Reformed person. You have to think like this and you have to act like that. But when you dig a little deeper in their lives or hear things, it's so disappointing to hear how willing they are to live a worldly life in other respects. Whether that be in drinking it up on Friday night and being plastered, or going to bed with whoever they're dating. You hear about those things. You all know that. You see, it's about forsaking the commandments of God, but maintaining the traditions of man. That's what Christ said about people of his own day. And we need to think about that too. God says, serve me according to my word, and forget about all the hoops that you people lay down. Serve me according to my word. And the Lord Jesus, when he was on this earth, he lived according to this commandment perfectly. He served God according to his word. When he was being tempted in the devil, in the wilderness, when he was down and out, when things were hard on him, when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, when he was vulnerable, just like we can be vulnerable, when we face challenges in life, when things are not easy for us, and we have questions, where are you, God? The devil comes to us and he says, do it your own way. You can serve God on your own terms. He said to Christ, turn those stones into bread. If God isn't going to feed you, you take care of it yourself and you do it your own way. What did the Lord Jesus say? The Lord Jesus said, you can read it in Matthew 4, man shall not live by bread alone, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Listen to the voice of God. Just like Samuel said, listen, I hear. Speak, Lord. Your servant hears. The Lord Jesus fulfilled this commandment for us perfectly, and he did so all the way to the cross. He did so when he sweat drops of great blood in the Garden of Gethsemane when he contemplated what he would have to do on the cross for us. The devil was right there. You can be sure of it. Tempting him to do it his own way. And when he was on the cross, the devil was speaking through the bystanders who said, he saved others. He can't save himself. Come down from the cross if you are the Christ. It was a question of whether the Lord Jesus would serve God according to his word, whether the Lord Jesus would live up to the mission that the Father had given him. He was the perfect king. And on the cross, he defeated the devil by being obedient to the very end and paying the price for our sins. 
And on the third day, he arose as the victor over sin, Satan, and death. That's our Savior. And our Savior says to us, I saved you. Serve God according to his word. And there are consequences because this commandment includes a reference to consequences. Samuel experienced it, or Saul experienced it, when Samuel spoke to him. Samuel said to Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And that also found expression in a very graphic way when Saul grabbed a hold of Samuel as he turned to go away and tore his robe. And then Samuel said, just as this robe was torn, so the kingdom will be torn away from you. There were consequences for Saul. But the commandment itself also includes those consequences. It's mentioned there because the commandment says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's the consequence. And you might ask this afternoon, why is that consequence included in the second commandment? Couldn't it be included in all of them? It sure could be. But there's a reason why it's here. And that reason is that we think so lightly, so easily about the second commandment. We say, I'm serving God. What's wrong? I'm still serving God. But God says, I don't just want a thin veneer of Christianity over your life. And if you dig a little deeper, it's not much different than the world. I don't just want Sunday Christians. I want Christians who serve me every day of the week. And because we easily think lightly of it, God included it in this commandment. And God warns us, he says, there are consequences for the generations. If we today take it easy in the service of the Lord, if we today think that we can serve God on our own terms, that we can set the standard ourselves, that it doesn't matter much that we live one way on Sunday and another way the rest of the week, well, that's going to have consequences in the generations. What do you think your kids are going to do? And your grandkids? It's to the third and the fourth generation. And very sadly, and I usually don't like to refer to other churches, but if you look in Christianity in general, you see it where churches themselves take liberties with Christian doctrine and carve out of the Bible the things that don't please us. It doesn't take long, and there's not much left. It doesn't take long, and the pews are empty because if even the church leadership does not believe what the Bible says, why would anyone come? It's a sad reality.
And if you look around in the Western world, the church is shrinking. But the flip side is true too. If you walk with God in faith and obedience, striving in the power of the Spirit to live according to His will, God blesses that. To a thousand generations, says the commandment. Because if one generation sees the next generation, the older generation, taking it seriously, chances are, generally speaking, a good pattern had been set. And it's about patterns. God is not saying in this commandment, it's all set. If one generation goes wrong in a family, the next generation will for sure go wrong. Doesn't work that way. Neither does God say if the older generation lives a good Christian life, the younger generation will also. But a pattern is set. And that's what God wants to impress upon us. So think about that. How you live sets the pattern for the next generation. And that's also what the church leadership needs to remember. Patterns are set. And God says to us, if you serve me according to my word, I will go with you on the journey through life. I'll be with you every step of the way. And that's a wonderful promise. Live out of that promise. Take God on his word. And always remember that God is a holy God and we cannot treat him lightly. As we will sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Amen.